Chapter 6, top 10 trends in CFI. 6.0, state of CFI. As centralized crypto financial services go, 2023 was a mercifully quiet year compared to last year. Sure, there were a bunch of bankruptcy workouts, a couple of high-profile arrests, plea deals, settlements, and one conviction so far, not to mention a number of fines and rounds of layoffs at the titans of crypto, but it seemed manageable compared to the credit contagion of 2022. Most CFI companies buried the bodies of yesteryear and got back to the boring ground and pound business of crypto infrastructure. Coinbase crushed it in a difficult market and their shareholders won big. Binance lived to fight another day, albeit under new leadership. OKX, Kraken, and Bybit were net winners, but many other exchanges lost ground. Exchange volumes hit their lowest levels since late 2020 in September, and piss-poor sentiment, delistings, and regulatory choke points all played a role in contracting the CFI landscape. But we seem to be back on the upswing. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. 6.1 what? A year for Coinbase. Coinbase is operating at an otherworldly level right now and remains the best positioned company in crypto. They weathered the post-FTX storm and several rounds of layoffs, sued the SEC when they needed to take the gloves off and go to war, secured license after license in an international expansion whirlwind, deepened a core strategic partnership with Circle regarding USDC issuance and launched PERPs. They also shipped a successful L2 in base, which generated $7 million in revenue in its first quarter and powered the app of the year, friend.tech, made multiple slick upgrades to their self-hosted wallet and wallet-as-a-service expansion play, and launched Project Diamond, an on-chain RWA platform. They also paid down debt at favorable prices, beat earnings expectations multiple times, and benefited from a mixed shift in revenue that now has the majority of Coinbase's earnings coming from non-trading activities in a low-volume environment with brutal regulatory headwinds, the company is operating at break-even. Imagine what will happen when an ETF gets approved and their custody revenue alone doubles overnight. Retail revenues will still drive the business forward in bull markets, but this is a company built for ZERP speculation and high interest and staking environments alike today. They've got the cash hoard and informational advantages. Coinbase Ventures has been the third most active industry investor this year to pursue inorganic growth M&A once consolidation plays emerge as crypto startups start running out of money. I told Brian on stage at Mainnet that his company was performing so well that I felt like I was kissing his ass, but what am I going to do? Lie about it. They haven't just been on the pulse, they have been the pulse of crypto, and they avoided the catastrophic errors that so many other crypto incumbents fell prey to this cycle. Coinbase certainly isn't infallible, and they've still got to win their high-stakes U.S. court cases, ward off competition from the emerging Wall Street players hell-bent on eating their lunch, and do what they can to steal share back from Binance internationally. None of that will be easy. But I don't think there are many operators in crypto who wouldn't trade positions with Coinbase right now if they could. The company is a juggernaut, and I hope the intensity and creativity stays as high as it's been this year. 6.2 Binance in 2.4. Has there ever been a more expensive chat message in the history of the world ever since we read this line in the CFTC's uh, complaint against Binance back in March? We knew it was just a matter of time before the DOJ shoe dropped 
and the U.S. authorities extracted their pound of flesh from CZ and his company. For a long time, I assumed early Binance compliance shenanigans would result in a billion-dollar fine, but no jail time. That wasn't directionally off, but I underestimated the size of the fine and could yet turn out to be overly optimistic about CZ's prospects for staying out of jail completely with his plea deal. There are a few silver linings to Binance's settlements with the U.S. government and guilty plea for money laundering and sanctions law violations. One, it could have been worse, much worse. I'm not sure we could afford the black cloud of a shadowy global exchange hanging over the industry's head much longer. It started to feel like an existentially bad outcome was on the horizon. Binance was accused of some bad behavior, but what they copped to likely wasn't nearly as bad as it could have been. The end result is that Binance is still chugging along and dominating global exchange volumes. Their 150 million global users uh, seem happy. Two, we have surveillance sharing agreements. These institutional compliance agreements might finally pave the way for institutional entry to crypto. Surveillance sharing was always cited as a missing bit of market infrastructure that blocked the approval of spot crypto ETFs. Now the major ETF applicants have formal agreements in place with Coinbase and an independent compliance monitor may give the U.S. regulators comfort that Binance's global operations are on the up and up. CFI has been legitimized overnight in a way it's never been before. Three, the U.S. giants can actually compete. Coinbase and Kraken are still facing frivolous lawsuits from the SEC. But the Binance resolution re-leveled the competitive playing field a bit after years in which American companies sat at a structural disadvantage to their overseas counterparts. You could tell how much this bothered Brian Armstrong and Jesse Powell based on their public comments following the announcement. It doesn't make the U.S. regulators' behavior towards the industry okay, and it doesn't reverse the market share losses the U.S. leaders suffered in the process but at least the American rule followers don't feel like complete suckers for building at home anymore. Four, customer funds are SFU, but tax filers, uh, one of the things I expect out of the Binance settlement is an enormous amount of customer pain for Binance's American users who failed to correctly report their crypto holdings or gains. Binance may have just handed the DOJ and IRS a honeypot of naughty little boys and girls just in time for Christmas. As someone who pays taxes and hates every second that's wasted on the horrifically complicated cost basis, tracking and reporting of crypto, I am marginally happier knowing that low-hanging fruit tax evaders will be pursued before I'm asked about my intraday accounting of $5,000 of LP pool tokens. Five, the beginning of the end. FTX's bankruptcy felt absolutely gutting because I knew that we were in for a relentlessly awful 12 months. The FTX bankruptcy was the end of the beginning of the crypto bear market last November. Getting the Binance settlement behind us finally feels like the beginning of the end and is probably responsible for 51% of my bullishness going into 2024. A weight has been lifted and we can move forward. It sounds weird to say, but I'm also pretty excited for CZ's next act. It sounds like he's interested in Deshai and anytime you get to start something new, it's liberating. Assuming his sentencing is light and smooth this February, this is probably the best possible outcome for someone who ran headfirst into the U.S. empire and didn't get Epstein in the process. 6.3, the other net CFI winners. 
If you want a quick peek at who's most likely to pick up the slack from Binance, you can just look at Binance Research's institutional customer survey results from earlier this year. The most important factors for new entrants when selecting CFI services were liquidity, security, and reputation. I'm sure that gets truer by the day when considering the U.S. regulatory position on crypto right now. Outside of Coinbase, three players stood out for their market share gains this year, all on the exchange side, OKX, Kraken, and Bybit. Binance lost 25 points of market share in international exchange volumes this year, primarily to Kraken in Europe and OKX and Bybit elsewhere. Some of this was due to traders diversifying away from Binance due to regulatory concerns, though Bybit has had some rumored interest from regulators as well. We'll see if the exchange can recoup some of their customer losses now that they've put their U.S. concerns in the rearview mirror. I don't have time to write up every single global exchange platform, and there are many other good ones like Bitfinex, Bitstamp, Upbit in Korea, Bitso in Mexico, etc. But I would point out that the exchange tokens, for those that have them, have held up pretty well as both a historical performance, report card, and signal of strength heading into 2024, Huobi's HT token halved, and BNB and Leo flatlined, but the others rallied YTD with the markets comeback. It's all priced in. What about the dedicated custodians? Binance Research's survey results showed that nearly 60% of institutional investors prefer to store crypto on exchanges, while just 20% preferred non-exchange custodians like Anchorage and Fireblocks. I could go out on a limb and say that this gap will likely narrow, but I will admit I was surprised to see Coinbase run the table as the custodian partner for most of the spot Bitcoin ETF applicants. It's not surprising that investors prefer the one-stop shop convenience of bundled custody and exchange services, but it does lead to some head scratching when you consider recent history, FTX flame out. The crypto custodians may be the big winners if we get some bills passed. 6.4, the ETF race is. For those who believe the spot Bitcoin ETF may be a sell the news event, I would only ask one question. If not marketing spend, direct to consumer ad dollars and institutional sales to key distribution partners, then how else will these firms compete for ETF AUM in January? You want to hold assets that uh, BlackRock, Fidelity, Tree, Franklin Templeton, Invesco, Grayscale, Bitwise, ARK, Van Eek, and Valkyrie are all tripping over themselves to sell harder than each other. And that's exactly what's going to happen with Bitcoin as soon as the ETF floodgates open. With billions of dollars of fees on the line, there will be enough shilling to make even the most cringe crypto YouTube personality uncomfortable. A spot Bitcoin ETF is a product whose time has long since come. Institutional money managers are going to love the fastest horse, Lasarch, digital gold narrative, Bitcoin's sharp ratio, the knack for both explosive growth years, performance fees, and volatility trading fees, and all of the other bull case bulletin board material I already wrote about in previous sections. I haven't thought deeply about the other ETF issuers, to be honest, or the timing of the other spot crypto ETFs, ETHE, now that the SEC has broken the seal on ETH futures ETFs as well. A few rapid reactions, though. One, we know that fees on these products are going to come down rapidly, and the market is about to get a whole lot more liquid. Two, as the primary custodian for most of the ETF issuers, Coinbase is bound to see billions of dollars of new custody demand overnight. Three, Michael Saylor, who owns 25% of MicroStrategy, 
gets to keep the five billion of Bitcoin his company now owns and the 1.6 billion gain they've notched on that levered bet so far, even if MSTR loses some of its sort of an ETF luster. Sailor played an all-in wealth creation game on easy mode, respect. As exciting as the prospects of the ETF approval are, I'm still a bit sad thinking about what could have been. The SEC created a financial weapon of mass destruction and full-blown crypto credit crisis with their refusal to convert Grayscale's GBTC product much earlier, and it blew up Three Arrows Capital, BlockFi, Voyager, FTX, Genesis Capital, Gemini Earn, and maybe even Grayscale's own parent digital currency group in the process. Let me explain for the fifth year in a row. 6.5 DCG and the fall of Rome. Now, not Grayscale should be first out of the gates, and they and their GBTC shareholders should be the biggest winners of this long overdue milestone. But their biggest threat to an ETF uplisting may be tied to the high stakes drama at their parent and sister companies, DCG and Genesis. If FTX was guilty of garden variety fraud thanks to its founder's delusional and Machiavellian mission to become a trillionaire and U.S. president, then DCG's struggles last year were more tragic. They had good businesses, tons of liquid assets and earnings power and a good reputation, but they were eventually choked out by a mix of bad timing and bad counterparty risk management surrounding the very product that made them kings, GBTC. Uh, I'm not sure I've read a worse legal complaint than the New York Attorney General's civil fraud allegations against digital currency group, DCG, its prime broker Genesis and its executives for defrauding more than 230,000 investors, including at least 29,000 New Yorkers of more than $1 billion. Crypto exchange and custodian Gemini was also included in the complaint for allegedly misrepresenting the riskiness of the Gemini Earn Investment Program at the center of the fraud allegations. The evidence cited against both groups look not great. I'll try to catch you up once again at 3x speed. DCG created asset manager Grayscale and its Bitcoin investment trust product in 2013. Given Barry Silbert's expertise in private markets, his first company, Second Market, was a trading platform for private shares and companies like Facebook, the trust was the first vehicle to get publicly quoted through a side door listing mechanism called Rule 144. You can read the details about this side door ETF in previous Masari reports here, here, and here. The details are technical, but what you need to know is that GBTC was the only game in town for public market Bitcoin exposure for many years. The Bitcoin trust allowed investors to create new shares using Bitcoin deposits, but didn't have a redemption mechanism to convert shares back to Bitcoin because the SEC sued them to cease their redemption program in 2014. As a result, GBTC shares could trade above or below NAV net asset value as share supply was locked, but demand for GBTC shares versus spot Bitcoin varied over time. For years, GBTC traded at a premium as it was the lone public Bitcoin equity instrument available to many investors. Demand exceeded supply, but supply couldn't quickly adjust to demand given the side door path to offering GBTC shares. Hedge funds piled into this arbitrage trade uh, with uh, leverage in 2020 and 2021, betting that they could create new shares, flip them to public markets investors while the NAV premium existed, and redeem shares for Bitcoin if the share price ever fell to a discount 
in particular once a spot ETF was approved that allowed for daily redemptions. But few anticipated that the GBTC share premium could flip to a deeply negative discount for an extended period of time. Alas, it was a bloodbath in 2021-2023. The GBTC share price reached a 50% discount to NAV last December. Grayscale successfully sued the SEC this summer for blocking its ETF conversion on arbitrary and capricious grounds. Though the ruling may have come too late to save DCG, as the damage from the GBTC-related credit contagion was already done, that's because GBTC investors praying for an ETF approval, which would allow for a share redemption at par value, were already blown out of their levered GBTC bets in mid-2022. GBTC was the widowmaker trade that took out 3AC, among others, and 3AC was a large Genesis capital borrower. The bad GBTC collateralized loans to 3AC were among the largest assets at Genesis. When 3AC went bankrupt, Genesis suddenly had a $1 billion hole to fill in its balance sheet. It looked to its parent DCG for help. Given the earnings power of DCG and its subsidiaries and its known balance sheet, it seemed reasonable that DCG could plug the hole, even though it was massive. DCG and Genesis worked out a deal whereby Genesis could unload its bad 3AC loans and bankruptcy claims to DCG in return for a 10-year promissory note that doubled as a capital infusion. In reality, it appears to have allegedly been an empty accounting trick. DCG didn't have the cash or liquid crypto assets to back the note. Instead, their company's earnings power, which was considerable, would be able to pay down the commitments to Genesis. And in reality, it turned out that uh, DCG was itself a borrower from Genesis. The firm allegedly borrowed large sums of money from its subsidiary in order to finance stock buybacks and purchases of GBTC shares back when they traded at a steep discount to NAV. The GBTC share repurchases were publicly disclosed in grayscale filings. The DCG share repurchases were unknown at the time, but disclosed later in the Winklevoss complaints against DCG. The NYAG and Gemini alleged that Genesis and DCG fraudulently misrepresented the nature of the promissory note as a current asset, in this case a liquid asset with less than a year of duration to Genesis creditors in order to avoid a bank run on Genesis and firm up confidence in the lender after a public black eye from the 3AC bankruptcy. And there's been conjecture that DCG may have bailed out Genesis in June 2022 in an attempt at the time to avoid getting pulled into a Genesis bankruptcy where they ended up anyway. There are some bad facts in the NYAG complaint, written statements from executives that look difficult to explain away at first glance. I, I recommend Vijay's synthesis of the situation here to get fully up to speed on the related party transactions uh, and what exactly has been alleged by the NYAG. Ram even made the Enron analogy. I also recommend Laura Shin's interview with two Genesis creditors. Or you can read the NYAG complaint itself and decide what you want to believe while the case makes its way through the courts. I'm not going to speculate much more on how this plays out other than to say that I've seen the documents, I've read the complaints, and I know how much money is on the line. I do think there's maybe a 90% chance that all the parties end up settling and living to fight another day, perhaps after they pay hefty fines. Now that asset prices are once again ripping higher, more importantly, I doubt 
that the tangled relationships in this saga will complicate and drag out Grayscale's ETF conversion application with the SEC, GBTC shareholders would be the only ones who would be punished by that outcome. The wrinkle is whether the NYAG's complaint against DCG, which seeks to permanently ban Barry and DCG and Genesis and Moro and Gemini from engaging in any business related to the issuance, offer, distribution, exchange, promotion, advertisement, negotiation, purchase, investment advice, or sale of securities or commodities within or from this state ultimately has teeth. There are existential ramifications for DCG, Genesis, and Gemini, but could authorities technically force a sale or spin out of grayscale from DCG given their shared governance? I doubt it. Um, Genesis is dead. Its wealth management division HQ was shuttered. DCG just sold Coindesk to crypto exchange Bullish, and many of DCG's investment assets appear to have been sold off or pledged as collateral to Genesis or its counterparties. That leaves Grayscale as the crown jewel of DCG, along with Foundry, the operator of the world's largest Bitcoin mining pool. It's tough to imagine DCG as a going concern without Grayscale, so I wouldn't expect this fight to abate for years if push comes to shove. It's simply not happening. Uh, honestly, I could write another 20 pages on this saga and how it might unfold, but I already did that when it mattered uh, last year. My optimistic resolution did not come to pass. Uh, instead, I'll cut this short and wish a very Merry Christmas to all of the lawyers and bankers involved. A couple of disclaimers. One, Gemini and Winklevoss Capital are small investors in Masari. Two, I own GBTC shares, which represent interest in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Grayscale is owned by DCG and is a sister company to Genesis. Three, I was the first employee at the DCG parent company when it spun out from uh, Barry Silbert's previous venture, Second Market. I worked with the two execs singled out in the NYAG complaint, Barry and Genesis CEO Mike Morrow from 2014 to 2017. I have no financial relationship with DCG or any of its affiliates aside from GBTC shares and haven't since I left. Four, last December I wrote some thoughts about how DCG, Genesis and their creditors may have recapitalized and avoided this public shit show. Obviously none of what I had outlined as a potential path to a private resolution manifested I've been passively watching the spectacle play out along with the rest of you all ever since. Dia Indersel. Discover Masari Pro, the all-in-one solution for your cryptocurrency research and data needs. Stay ahead of the curve with the latest on emerging projects and uncover unique market opportunities. For a limited time, enjoy an exclusive 10% off your new Pro subscription with code THESES10 at checkout. Visit us at masari.io pro to learn more. 6.6 .6 banking choke points. I've already covered Operation Choke Point 2.0 thoroughly in previous sections, but it's worth double-clicking on one item in particular that's a less obvious medium-term setback for the industry. The destruction of the SEN and Signet services has significantly hampered liquidity within the industry and signaled to major U.S. market makers to get the hell out of crypto markets in the U.S., two of crypto's largest market makers in Q1, Jane Street and Jump Trading pulled liquidity from U.S. crypto trading platforms within weeks. We don't want regulated financial firms banking crypto companies was a message well received and it helped wreck market depth by 30-50% essentially overnight. In any other country, what Senator Warren did in reportedly conspiring with short sellers to assassinate crypto-friendly banks 
and apply extrajudicial pressure on other regulated financial institutions was a miscarriage of justice. Unfortunately, in the modern US, it didn't even register as a scandal, it was just a Wednesday. I do think it's, it's important to set the record straight on this, though um, Silvergate in particular was a great supporter of the industry and will go down as one of the most important companies in our young history. They didn't deserve the death penalty for Sam Bankman-Fried's crimes, and they shouldn't have met their demise at the hands of a conflicted and politically motivated senator. They liquidated their business in an orderly manner and didn't need a taxpayer bailout via the FDIC to wind down operations. That's because their business model and reserve risk management practices were actually pretty good, and they offered exactly the type of close to fully reserved banking we should be fighting for now as a replacement to our fallen comrades. Fortunately, we have Caitlin Long's Custodia Bank, which has been grinding out progress in her multi-year litigation to secure a Fed master account Despite the stiff opposition of the Federal Reserve, their dirty games, and a literally unlimited legal budget due to the way the Fed is able to fund its own operations. Custodia now accepts dollar deposits and offers Bitcoin custody services for business customers, but there's a long way to go to reclaim the banking services we lost this year. 6.7 CME versus PERPS versus DX. The Bitcoin futures markets are rocking ahead of ETF speculation and sit at their highest level of open interest, OI, since early 2022. CME futures may have taken the lead amongst institutional investors in OI, but perpetuals as a product still dominate more than 75% of the global crypto futures OI and more than 90% of volumes. Binance, Bybit, and OKX take down the lion's share of Bitcoin perp volumes today, and even crypto options platform Deribit is primarily a perps-driven business. The products crowd out every other major trading product given their 24-7 nature and the high leverage rates on most major exchanges. It's unlikely CME will compete as effectively with the perp giants outside of Bitcoin as I don't see many scenarios where the ETH futures ETFs pick up market share versus their imminent spot alternatives. With just $20 million in AUM across the ETH futures ETFs that launched this fall, there's not a whole lot of need for high volume CME markets. That will likely be the case for every other asset for which CME ultimately lists a market as well. And it's much more likely Wall Street firms will lobby to trade perps than wait on the sidelines for US regulators to green light the CME markets on a multi-year lag. I'd also expect DYDX, which already outpaces BitMEX and Kraken in certain markets, ETH and SOL, to continue to win market share versus its centralized perps competition DEDX's outperformance could just be the beginning. I'll have more to share about this in chapter nine, but DYDX's migration to a Cosmos app chain should speed up performance and unlock another banner year amidst limited DeFi competition. 6.8 compliance tools, tax and AML forensics. I wrote that my base case for 2023 was that the IRS would create hell for crypto investors. I'm sure that's probably happening at scale, or is about to, given the treasure trove of information the Feds now have from their settlement with Binance, and Kraken's relenting on the IRS's dragnet demand that Kraken turn over data on 42,000 high-volume user accounts. Coinbase had turned over similar records in 2017, following a court order that is still being challenged in court on constitutional grounds. 
Broker reporting requirements always struck me as somewhat sensible and inevitable, but following the coming implementation of the crypto broker rule tax reporting requirements, they are now definitely here. While I will miss manually reconciling cost basis and trades across three exchanges and a bunch of DeFi applications, I am thrilled to get a professional and accurate tax form at the end of the year next year from the firms I have been using for years. If tax reporting is a nightmare, then AML reporting is a hellscape. With major DeFi hacks by North Korea and the sanctioning of Tornado Cash, 2022 was not a great year. While I believe the industry's compliance tools and norms continue to get stronger each year, 2023 may have been even worse from a headlines risk standpoint, thanks largely to some ill-advised marketing by blockchain forensics leader Elliptic. What was meant to be an advertisement for how blockchains help industry players identify and catch illicit actors turned into a public billboard that was used to argue for the industry's destruction. Elliptic clarified the data, but the damage was already done. I don't need to repeat myself from Chapter 5. I think TradFi and our horrific .gov government sites are at far greater risk of technical exploits or missing rogue payments. But their screw-ups aren't broadcast via open accounting ledgers, so they don't make the front page of the newspaper. Ours do. I'm looking forward to Chainalysis's annual crypto crime report. You can read last year's to get a sense for how much better things keep getting year in and year out when it comes to crypto compliance. The vulnerabilities we have are identified quickly and patched, and we're slowly creating an army of OPSEC militants, which is probably a long-term positive for society. 6.9 compliance tools, diligence. Some of Masari's top power users work in compliance and how listing decisions get made, how tokens get supported once they are integrated into a crypto platform, and how investors get comfortable allocating client capital or voting their tokens all come with certain duties of care. We already highlighted some of these tools in Chapter 3, but we have the most comprehensive library of asset diligence reports on the market and track off-chain developments, corporate actions, legal and regulatory developments, and community governance for hundreds of global crypto projects. And there will definitely be reporting requirements for the crypto industry in the years ahead. Um, whether that looks like Hester Pierce's safe harbor or uh, MyCA's enhanced token disclosure rules is besides the point. We know what types of information need to be aggregated in order to reduce the flaring information asymmetries that exist in crypto today. And we're already building the tools that will be ready when policymakers define the final rules. 610, everyone else in TradFi? The opportunities for TradFi within crypto are obvious. They have regulatory advantages and compliance moats, a knack for investing enormous sums of human and financial capital when they sense opportunity, and perhaps most importantly, a clean slate that comes from waiting for permission for many years on the crypto asset class's periphery. In tech, a late mover bias may be a liability, but in finance, it's a competitive advantage, one that Gary Gensler himself harped on back when he taught at MIT and suggested that crypto's incumbents might be too far gone to remediate their listing sins and come into compliance as regulated exchanges. Beyond the ETF race, Fidelity is the TradFi firm with the highest potential to lead the field in 2024 and compete most aggressively with Coinbase. 
They've been deep in the industry for a decade, field a large and talented team, and would have launched their excellent services with much more fanfare had their go-live not coincided with last November's FTX train wreck. My base case assumption continues to be that all assets on the planet eventually trade on open blockchains, so incumbents' entrance to crypto is merely a matter of time, scale, and asset types. Some firms might be tempted to stay on the sidelines with initial service offerings for a bit longer and pay up for M&A opportunities rather than false start again on homegrown platforms. If we see a sustained price rally, Wall Street will go shopping. Conclusion. CFI and institutional crypto might need to be a whole separate report for me in 2024. I have glossed over a lot at precisely the same time many institutions are reconsidering their entrance into the space. June mid-year report, perhaps. Until then, there's more to be excited about in the liquid crypto markets. The rest of this report is about those bubbling opportunities